0: So the price of a home in Canada doesn't bear a lot of relation to, like, the cost of the materials and the labor. Uh, It's almost like a civil war that's, like, intensified because, like, superpowers are arming both sides. But instead of, like, weapons and sides in the civil war, it's just, like, people that are outbidding each other by how much of their life they want to spend in indentured servitude to banks.
1: That's one way of looking at it. Uh, it's interesting because if you start... Okay, so housing prices, there's, like a huge number of things that play into the cost of a house. So labor and materials is just one small aspect of the, of what's going on. So, and in in areas where there is not limited space. um, So if you go to rural areas, small towns, the, the actual representation is very close to,
0: I don't know. um, I'm not sure. Like the cost of housing in out West in places where the economy is doing very well, um, the cost of housing is very high. Um, like, what does a well, house cost in Whitehorse? Like, it's not, it's not cheap. Or Grand Prairie.
1: Well, there's there's going to be a number of reasons for that. So, how how expensive is it going to be to get somebody who knows what they're doing to go out there and build a house? You know, the the cost of labor is going to be a lot higher. It's not. I mean. Right?
0: It's not a lot higher. It is higher.
1: And uh, there's other things, though, that also play into it. So you've got, even in areas where there's lots of space, there are going to be certain areas that are much more desirable than others, just because they're either close to existing uh, schools or uh, shopping or, you know, it's actually just a nice area to live in because you've got water or whatever. There's there's a lot of other local effects. Theoretically,
0: I mean, I think a lot of that is just, it's just like the bandwagon effect that people get caught up and wanting to live in a certain like in a yeah in a certain area. Yeah.
1: yeah, and that, and you're absolutely right that that is a that that bandwagon effect. But it it magnifies expenses in certain specific areas,
0: or it magnifies expenses, or it allows developers to make a whole lot of money. Like allow and they're allowed to do that. Like the way a cabinet maker put it to me one time, it's like anything that people go into debt to pay for is gonna there's gonna be money. Oh yeah, huge amount of money in it
1: yeah and that's the thing like if if you're in an area like toronto if you can somehow build a house on your property that is otherwise empty you will have increased the value of that property immensely versus if it if it's got to be abandoned land and you can't do anything with it you know it's it's worthless is there
0: land like that because of zoning oh absolutely
1: Quite a frequent problem. And in, and this is one of the things, at least in the United States, and I think Canada probably applies as well, is that areas where zoning regulations are quite tight and difficult to ne- negotiate, like the East Coast or San Francisco or Toronto or Vancouver, all of these places have very stringent planning that require very stringent requirements for building your house, for getting your permits, for changing zonings, for all these things, it's very, very difficult. And as a result, th- those are the markets that ended up significantly overvalued compared to what you'd expect.
0: So you're saying it's like a lot of it comes down to city council.
1: It's not just city council, though. Planning, at least in Ontario, most of the planning in Ontario is actually provincially mandated. So there's certain all the rules that you have to follow are actually... Put in place by the province rather than the municipal areas. The municipal areas will administer the planning stuff, but they they don't actually they don't actually set the fundamental rules underlying everything.
0: So it's the province of Ontario that comes in and makes Toronto City Council set rules that make it hard to build residential units.
1: Sort of. So you the the province sets the guidelines. They can say we want more development in terms of densification. So you want more apartment buildings rather than houses. They can encourage the system to do that. But at the municipal level, they still set the actual zoning. For example, they would say, oh, this area we think should be residential. This area we think should be commercial. We think this area should be industrial. The province doesn't have much play in that. And so what ends up happening is you end up with a lot of municipal Locals who are saying, "Okay," and to be honest, my grandfather is a perfect example of this. Back in the 1970s, on his road north of Toronto, they wanted to put in a apartment building. He fought tooth and nail and prevented it from happening. He went to his local council. He fought for. He went in. He talked to them. He, you know, put up a lot of resistance. You know, saying, "Oh yeah, well, everyone along the street is no longer to vote for anybody who's going to," you know, and they put pressure on the council. The council. Passed a resolution saying they couldn't put an apartment building on this land because it would change the character of the neighborhood. The thing is, is that since that time, that street has become a haven for the very, very wealthy because, you know, unsurprisingly, it's a really nice street. There's big tall trees everywhere, very nice house. Well, to be honest, they knocked down most of the houses and built big brand new ones that are very, very nice. There's streams, it's a really pretty area. But my grandfather's house is now worth, you know, I think he bought it for $5,000 and currently they're offering some multiple millions of dollars for it.
0: So it's almost like ultra gentrification, but it's gentrification of upper middle class by the ultra wealthy.
1: Yeah, in a lot of ways it is. And the thing is, is that. When you're in this group, if you own a house in one of these areas, you don't want development because development actually harms the value of your
0: house. In terms of build development, like building apartments and such. yeah, and
1: not not just because it changes the character of the neighborhood, but because if there's more places available, it's going to be cheaper to live in by the laws spots. of
0: supply and demand. It's so simple as that. It, it's residents of places that are acting in their own best interest. That are setting sometimes regulations that prevent the invisible hand from doing what it's got to do to make housing cost the same amount. Exactly.
1: You know, Texas has a lot of things wrong with it, but housing is not expensive because there's basically no rules.
0: <laughs> right. And so a house will be the land plus the cost of materials plus. Labor
1: Exactly. And you're not going to have any additional value on top of that other than, oh, if you happen to be in a particularly nice spot,
0: which is the value of the land.
1: Yeah. It, and this is this is actually probably the single biggest issue for the cost of housing, because you've got a controlled market where people are willing to borrow their life like, or you know, bet their life to get it, you know, and there's no way to easily ameliorate it because politically it's very difficult to just say oh we're going to build as many houses as we want
0: and get rid of all the regular yeah it's it's a portion of the economy where those who already have land are using state control to keep their own property
1: exactly and it's it's really it's it's pretty nasty when you look at it the whole way because it's like First of all, you can only vote in the elections of these places if you live there. Yeah. And so the only people who can possibly get elected are those that are acting in the interest of the current residents.
0: It's yuppie socialism. Yeah. Socialism with yuppie interests at heart. Yeah,
1: exactly. And so and as a result, you end up with certain areas that end up vastly over more expensive than they ever justifiably should be purely because of this this effect.
0: Yeah, like you always hear about people in Vancouver complaining about the taxes they have to pay and the house they've lived for so long it's hard for me to have anything but crocodile tears for a retiree who's sitting on a property that's worth two million dollars
1: or four million dollars as the case of vancouver often is it is kind of ridiculous so that's that's one aspect of all of this but you, you did mention the banks because that that's another very very interesting they're
0: fueling the fire
1: oh no no kidding but it's it's not just the banks it's it's about it actually comes down almost entirely to central bank policy
0: because it's a central part of our economy if we had a massive correction in the value of houses so that people of our generation could afford to own their own house it would have cascading effects through the stock market and like retirement savings oh yeah I mean there would be a whole lot of people who wouldn't be able to retire they've got a lot less money than they thought they did so I mean it's like a class but more like a generational conflict
1: It, it is in a long a lot of ways but the other thing as I said is the central bank policy plays into this massively historically there there's kind of eras of central bank policy and central bank policy basically comes down to fundamentally a promise made by the central bank And so during certain eras, they have promised, for example, from post-World War II, from 1945 to about 1980, the promise was that they would maintain full employment. And so during that whole era, you actually see a narrowing of equality. So everyone ends up more and more equal as this period of time goes on. And you would find by the late 1970s that a price of a house is actually very, very cheap compared to the number of years required to work to get it. Now, the cost of that was that interest rates continued to rise.
0: Sounds like a fair trade.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, and this is the thing. So the interest rates go up, but the the cost of the housing drops commensurately. And it doesn't just affect housing. It affects all asset prices. In 1980, like, in terms of monetary policy history, 1980 was a key year because across the rich world, the interest rates peaked. And in the United States, they peaked peaked around fifteen percent. In in uh, Canada, it was closer to twenty.
0: That's dramatic. That's like a credit card.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, like that was that was your annual interest rate. So when on... you say
0: that interest rates were twenty, do you mean that the prime lending rate, Bank of Canada, like?
1: No, no, no. It's worse than that. This this is what the government was getting. The government bonds were yielding twenty percent
0: right so if you wanted a a mortgage on a house you'd be looking at more like 25 probably
1: yeah potentially as high as 25 percent which is like seems ridiculous
0: but I mean it sounds ridiculous but the house cost five thousand dollars or whatever well it right? wouldn't have been five but it, it, twenty 000. but 20 or
1: twenty or thirty thousand and that and but precisely Rather because than like
0: three million
1: right exactly so and and it's precisely because the interest rates are so high because when you're buying one of these places the cost is is related to the debt you take on. So if the house costs twenty thousand dollars and you're paying, you know, five thousand dollars a year in mortgage payments, that's maybe all you can afford. But when the house costs five hundred thousand dollars, but now interest rates are only one percent.
0: <laughs> the bank will give you more of a rope to hang yourself with.
1: Well, it's not even hang yourself with, it's just it's that that's the Economic justification. That's what the asset is worth based on what other assets are yielding.
0: Well, it's what Correct? the it's what the asset's worth based on what the banks will give people to pay for it.
1: No, it's not even that. Because the thing is, is that if you are in a situation where you actually have the money to buy one of these things, you're given a choice, right? So you you could buy a house and then rent it out. So what's the value of that house? That house is going to just has to yield enough money as an investment to justify by investing in it over something else
0: which is like determined by like what how much it has to bring in as an investment property in order to be profitable is determined by the interest rates and like how much the banks will A- give out
1: Exactly but the interest rate is is actually founded centrally it's the central bank that determines interest rates and they're just and they're determining interest rates right now and so this is the thing in 1980 the promise changed so the the promise prior to 1980 was we will Maximize employment. Post-1980, the promise is, we will control inflation. Which
0: which benefits people who already have money.
1: Exactly. So when you start controlling inflation, the, the act of inflation coming down and the interest rates following and continuing to drop afterwards is you... Benefit people who have wealth at the expense of people who are trying to get into the system every time it drops.
0: What was the rationale behind that switch? Uh,
1: basically, in the late 1970s, you ended up with something called stagflation, where you have inflation rates just skyrocketing and no ability to rein it back in. So you ended up with a lot of people get like you'd have a recession and inflation wouldn't drop and so you couldn't you like you couldn't drop interest rates to stimulate the economy because if you did that then the inflation is going to go even higher it's going to wipe out all the value of everybody's money and at a certain point it destabilizes the economy so it's unhealthy to have interest rates that high and inflation rates that high so they determined that okay maybe this promise that we've made is kind of not working very well we're going to try to control inflation and see how it works and the truth was, for the first ten or fifteen years, even twenty years after that change was made, it actually had very positive economic effects.
0: And so, was stagflation a natural result of the Keynesian, the post-war Keynesian? It economics? absolutely was.
1: It's it's you've ended up with so, and you can look at the whole economy as a couple of different things. You've got consumption, and you've got investment. And so what happens in a Keynesian system if you just run it to its full extent is that you end up with very, very little capital reserves because the capital reserves keeps getting wipe- wiped out by rising inflation. And you end up with ever-rising demand for consumption because every the money keeps ending up in the pockets of people who are at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale who are going to spend it.
0: So it seems like... Keynesianism was a rational response to the Great Depression, absolutely, and the Second World War. But I mean, like any good thing, it was carried maybe past the point of balance. Yeah,
1: and actually, and I, I, I think one of the things in economics that is very, very frequent is that because it's it, you end up with an economic uh, feedback loop because when you make a group more powerful by gener- like by sending more money to them. They are going to continue to vote in their interests, and they will continue to cycle it into that. They'll keep pushing for things that benefit them
0: until the system breaks down. Have you heard the saying that generals are always ready to fight the last war? Exactly. It's almost like political leaders are always ready to fight the last economic issue. Exactly. So you had, like, Keynesians going in until... Finally, you got like the Reagans and the Thatchers well, to come in and switch to a more Hayekian standpoint. Yeah. But then now you see guys like Paul Ryan, who, you know, his Bible is like Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> and he learned, his generation learned from Reagan. And now they hold that kind of like Hayekian central bank inflation. The central bank having inflation as its primary concern as and low taxes yeah. as something that's going to carry the economy forward now. But... It, they're just like the Keynesians in the eighties. They're fighting the last war exactly.
1: And and the funny thing is, is that in the end, eventually, the, <laughs> our generation is going to take over, and we're going to take a very uh, Keynesian way of looking at things because we were looking at this going, like, "This is bullshit. This doesn't work for anybody." Yeah. Um. And and so it will eventually break
0: down. And then boy. we'll have a, maybe a big economic boost moving forward that'll last for you know thirty years. And then it'll be time for a more Hayekian, more Hayekian policy.
1: Yeah, basically by the time, I'm guessing by the time I'm 70, there will, we will be back into the, the stagflation, is my guess. So, you know, I'm calling it now, in the 2060s, we're going
0: to have stagflation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's so hard to judge with like robots. Yeah, stuff I mean, it, stuff, it but is. But we, we we might be living in a bunker with like thermal camouflage, fighting the the second robot war.
1: In, I in mean, who knows? <laughs> but like, if if the current trends and patterns continue, my guess is that we'll we'll, we'll be back up to a top when I'm an older man.
0: <laughs> we'll be fighting the the Butlerian Jihad. Yeah, it's hard to know what what twenty sixty will be like.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, yeah. It absolutely could be very different. But, I mean, assuming that the world doesn't get upended and everything's on its head, which, I mean, is always a possibility. It's quite likely. But
0: I mean, it's like Keane said, you know, in the long run, we're all dead. So you kind of just have to focus on the present. Yeah, and what's going on right now. Huh. And so what is the correct policy? Like, I guess it depends on what your interest is. Yeah, absolutely. For someone who's 30 years old, it's going to be different for some, than for someone who's 60. Well, and that's just it.
1: So from a perspective of someone who wants to buy a house... The simple answer is you want rising inflation because rising inflation will eat into any of the debts that you take on in trying to buy that house.
0: Yeah, I'm into that. Yeah.
1: So and and in fact rising interest rates will also devalue existing assets by comparison to everyone else but part of that
0: too and part of why i personally am not scared of rising inflation is that i feel personally like i'm useful in the labor market and i'm not scared of like moving around if you're set into a job and you're getting paid a certain amount and you live in a certain town and you have roots yeah then your employer has more bargaining power over what you're getting paid yeah. it's going to be very hard to negotiate a higher wage and inflation is going to hurt what hurt probably the vast majority of people who aren't like 30 year old yuppies yeah
1: it's true it actually in and in a lot of ways inflation is not great in those situations and it's interesting because you know historically like during the 60s uh and even the 50s but more so the 60s and 70s the you ended up with a wage uh wage price spiral so people kept demanding wage rises every time inflation increased and so it just kind of started feeding into itself but obviously if you if you can't negotiate the higher wage you're 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 shit out of luck,
0: which a lot of people realistically can't.
1: And, and that's actually one of the things that's kind of interesting right now because right now the the uh, employment rate in Canada is quite low.
0: Yeah. So like why the hell aren't wages going up? Like like what? Like what's up with that?
1: Why why the hell is it not happening? You think you'd think it would be marginally advantageous for a business to hire somebody and, you know, poach them from somebody else, but and yet wages are muted. Uh, whether that's because people are not haven't realized that they actually have bargaining power or whether it's because businesses have realized that if they hire new people on they would have to pay more than their existing employees are getting paid and they don't want to give everybody a raise
0: it's almost like we've learned to we've learned that there's not a lot of room for raises and so as kind of a collective we're not as willing to be confrontational with our employers about seeking more even though, even though right
1: now there, you actually are in a very, very strong bargaining position, and you probably could pressure people. <laughs> so right now we are at a, a peak. So, and actually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually make another economic call because the, the central bank's policy of controlling inflation over employment hasn't changed yet. So I, I'm gonna call that the next uh, recession is going to be very, very similar to the 2008 one. Wonderful. Yeah,
0: I know. <laughs> and we're coming into that recession right now.
1: I would guess over the next year or two would be yeah. uh, a good call. I mean, most like post-1980 recessions happen much less frequently. Um, so it's, you know, for example, the... This
0: has been the longest period of growth in history, right?
1: Uh, Close. Uh, 81 to 91. Um, So 19... Basically, but during the Great Moderation, which this era of declining inflation and declining interest rates we only have three major uh, recessions so we have 91 2000 2008 so they actually happen much less frequently versus in the 50s and 60s we were getting uh they were get, having recessions every three or four years like clockwork. oh wow
0: yeah like regular trying to do counter, you know counter cyclic spending it would hard to be like to even get it out the gate and then the recession would be done
1: exactly and this is, and this is the other thing is that it wasn't like the like post 1980 recessions last a long time. So 1991, it took two years to get the uh, employment numbers back up to where they were pre-recession. The 2000 2000- yeah, recession— why is that? It's, it's the change in policy. It's the guarantee that we're going to control inflation rather than employment. So people are less—like, businesses are less likely to hire people back on— because they know that this is going to go on for a while, and that the, there's not going to be a a v reset or a v recession where you're immediately back to same production levels. There's something called the Phillips curve, which broke down in the 1970s, and basically said the higher the inflation rate, uh, the the higher the employment rate. So if you let inflation rise, you're going to decrease unemployment.
0: Because it doesn't make as much sense to hold on to money. Exactly. But it's weird now because we have very like we have fairly full employment. But we have very low interest rates, and and so why are we experiencing more inflation now when interest rates were at like zero for like ten years?
1: That's exactly why, because it's been a, it's a lag. So when you drop interest rates so so low, you're again.
0: But we're not seeing like we're not seeing any inflation. Like, what is the the inflation rate now? Isn't it just like two percent,
1: three percent? And this is this is related. As I said, I think this is mostly related to the promise that they've made, and that that promise is we're going to control inflation. And so when everyone thinks the central bank is going to control inflation, you start controlling it for yourself.
0: So it's just like it's just like expectations built in. Exactly. And
1: it's taken them 30, 40 years to get this anchoring of the inflation at 2%.
0: Like where did this 2% figure come from?
1: Where did it come from? Literally central bank discussion. That's that's what it came from. It was not it was not based on any particular evidence. It was just based on what uh, the
0: opinions of the a bunch of guys wearing suits who went to university just got into a room together and shrugged and picked 2% because it sounded plausible. Basically,
1: you had some people on one side saying we needed a higher inflation rate and some people saying no, no, we need to control and get it down to zero and the 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 set Zero. The, that's that's yeah, Wow, well, you'd be surprised central banks uh tend to not attract the most um liberal of individuals yeah
0: yeah what i've been listening to lots of like audiobooks on economics and such and like discussion of from two different sources of how stable prices were from roman times up until the 1800s The cost of a loaf of bread increased four times from Roman times to like 1800. That was it. Yeah, that's it. That's it. There was four times inflation. If you look at how much labor it costs to get like say a loaf of bread, it it changed remarkably little.
1: Yeah, and I mean historically, it's very—it was tied to gold production. Gold was used as the backing for the monetary system. the The gold was relatively mild in terms of its individual effects. So you might only be getting one percent more gold per year in the whole system, and populations were potentially rising as quickly as that. So it's not gonna—you're ha- gonna end up canceling most of it out.
0: And productivity. Yeah,
1: exactly. So if, if you're getting increases, and even in the 1700s, you were getting slow, steady increases in productivity.
0: That's remarkable that people used to think that was a good idea, to have their currency tied. Like, it's such a silly thing to pick a rock that you think is pretty and then have that have a central role in your economy.
1: In your banking system is a little strange. Yeah, It's ludicrous. I I mean, it it goes to show
0: how much we're just like monkeys trying to figure this out. Yeah, it's
1: like, well, we think this is really valuable. Let's use it as our basis of currency.
0: And so what's the solution to... What policy is needed or should there be any changes to how housing works in Canada? Because it seems to me that, at least for our generation, it's not a system that we can succeed in.
1: No, it's not. And, you know, immigration ties into it as well. Because, you know, unsurprisingly, the areas where you're getting the most immigration see the biggest rises in housing prices. Because you're shoving more people into an area where there's limited supply. And then you're expecting to not have prices go up. I mean, it's going to happen. So my my argument would be you've got to make policy... That allows from easier housing development.
0: On, like, take the Hayekian route and just get rid of regulation, slash all the regulations as much as possible.
1: Right, when that's that's way you've you've got to open it up. Otherwise, you're not going to see a resolution to this problem. Take on um, like the
0: vested interests that are controlling policy. I'm sure, even to a certain degree, like developers. I'm sure.
1: And the know, other thing would be to have a change in central bank policy to
0: get inflation higher.
1: Exactly. So if they set a target, if they took their target inflation from two to three percent. And moved it to four to five percent, or but how
0: how could they even do that? That would have to be it. Couldn't be central bank. The government would just have to print a bunch of money.
1: No, no, that would be central bank policy. So basically, once once like right
0: now, we got really low. We're at what it's at like one point seven five.
1: We got we got low we got low interest rates right now,
0: right? But like from what we have nowhere, we can't go down anymore. Oh yes, we exactly.
1: So they can just they can leave it lower for longer and just wait until and say we're we're not gonna we're not gonna raise interest rates until inflation hits four percent.
0: And then, if, and then it's all- even more than the actual effect of the of of the central lending of the prime lending rate it would be people's reactions to it and the expectations and the news today people were they were going ape shit because they got rid of the word gradual yes
1: so that's the thing like that's it's the promise in central banking means more than the actual policy and this is it so if you saw a change in central bank policy where are th- of that promise they said no nope, we're we're changing the inflation target we're moving it to four percent then it would probably then just
0: go to four <laughs> percent
1: it would it would almost immediately go to four percent because immediately anyone who's taking out loans knows they're hey they're gonna
0: build that into their expectations exactly and it would.
1: you can say hey i can take a loan out right now at two percent and they're saying it's inflation is going to be four well i'm gonna i'm gonna make two percent every year no matter what even though
0: that's not radical it's not radical to to want to increase inflation up to three percent like that's not something that's unreasonable
1: no i mean it would be radical to say to 10 as you have this
0: generation that's struggling under student loans and unable to afford mortgages like yeah
1: i mean it it, makes sense it would be a very strong argument and the thing is is that once the inflation rate increased like that you'd actually have a little bit more room to start bringing it back in without risking <laughs> risking yeah. another demand recession, which is what our last three recessions have been.
0: Which is code for people being so poor they can't afford to buy it. Right.
1: It literally translates to that. It's like we're paying too much money. All the poor people are paying too much money in interest to buy anything.
0: Yeah, not even I mean poor like considering like upper middle class, you know, anybody making less than $150,000 a year is too poor to buy anything.
1: Yeah, it's literally literally you know? anyone who isn't it's rich like, is paying in that, too
0: like, much. In- 96% of the population is. Yeah,
1: exactly. And that and that's the problem, right? And the other problem is is that central banks are also under pressure internationally because if if you in your little country decide, "Oh, we're going we're going to, you know, we're going to break the dogma and we're going to start we're going to have a higher inflation rate and then things work out." You've pissed off a whole bunch of other countries that now look like idiots well isn't that what the military is for (laughs) i mean uh it also pisses off all the rich people in all those countries because now there's gonna be a huge political push
0: i'm not a communist oh neither am i stretch but i don't think we can allow like the super rich to dictate our policy yeah you know like like fuck them like i don't care even (laughs) even people who have like a if you have like a four million dollar property in vancouver i don't really care that much about your interests because you know what, you could you could sell that property. Yeah. You can move an hour away. You'll sur- not work. You don't have to work. You'll you do survive. To if you have that kind of property. You don't have a you don't have a right yeah. to to have the economy gamed in it's your true. favor. It's Even nice. conservative economic thinkers like like Hayek, for example, he'll, he says, you know, no system of laws designed by man up to this point has been ideal, and every system of laws that has existed benefits one group over the other. And especially if we're talking about a policy change that's like not going, the sky's not going to fall. You know, we're not, we're not saying like eat the rich, burn their, you know, it doesn't make you a Jacobin to call for 4% inflation because the current generation is suffering under debt with low wages and no way to build equity. No,
1: we're saying, we're saying we want inflation to be like 2% higher. Come on. I I am all for uh, reducing regulation in a lot of situations, but this this is one of those times when it's like, okay, (laughs) we're, we're clearly doing something a little broken here and it's hurting people and we can do something about it.